It was about 500 years ago that the Protestant Reformation formally began under Martin Luther. Luther started out as a Catholic priest, but the more he studied scripture and interacted with the clergy, the more he realized how utterly corrupt and unbiblical the church had become. And the church had so distorted the gospel message that Luther believed people were actually being kept out of the kingdom. So he left the church. He started preaching the true gospel that the common man might understand, be warned, and come to the truth. Now, one of the biggest claims Luther made in his writing to warn people was that the Pope was the Antichrist. That was one of the most shocking, jaw-dropping statements you could have made back then. You have to realize in the Western world back then, that there's only one religion, Catholicism. Everyone belonged to it. You're born into it. So everyone, by default, regarded the Pope as the head of the church and the holiest man on the planet. But here Luther is saying, no, just the opposite. He's, he's a servant of Satan. That's a total shock claim. But you, Luther used that to get people's attention. And thereafter, display to them everything wrong with the Catholic Church. I mean, who is the Antichrist in Scripture, after all, but the one who takes the place of Christ and, and subverts the church from within? And Luther believed that is what the Pope and his clergy were doing. Luther went on to use the printing press to his advantage to get the warning out. Many people could not read. So Luther commissioned a series of 26 woodcut pictures. They were to be printed and distributed, showing scenes of Christ's life contrasted with scenes, real scenes of the Pope's life. This was intended to show that the Pope was no true servant or imitator of Christ. And so one scene showed Christ carrying his cross to be crucified, and the other page showed the Pope being carried on his throne on the backs of people. One scene showed Christ washing the feet of his disciples. The other page showed the Pope having his feet being kissed by the people. One scene presented Christ driving moneylenders out of the temple, and the other scene showed the Pope counting his indulgence money. These were powerful pictures, and they opened the eyes of many that that the papal office had become thoroughly corrupt and was a far cry from what the Lord had intended. He may not agree with the tactic, but in his day, Luther pushed the envelope, and he used shock value and provocative statements to, to make a point, to grab people's attention and try and pry their eyes open to the truth. And interestingly enough, on several occasions, The Lord Jesus did the same thing. He didn't have the advantage of the printing press, but he was no stranger to making shocking, outrageous claims that went fully against the grain of the accepted religious authority of the day. And our text this morning starts off with one of those shocking claims. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. You can open your Bibles there now. Matthew chapter 5. The verse in question is verse 20, which serves as a type of hinge in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. This is Christ's pinnacle message. He starts with the Beatitudes, where he describes the essential character of his disciples. This is who they are to be as kingdom citizens. Then he calls us to be salt and light, describes the function of his disciples, how they are to live, how they are to function. After that comes verses 17 through 19. That's been our focus for The past two weeks, here Jesus transitions to the subject of God's law. Remember, he's speaking to a Jewish audience, those who highly regarded God's law. 
And to them, so far, Christ's message was standing out because of what Jesus was not saying. I mean, here he is. He's talking about, so far, what it takes to enter God's kingdom, but he hasn't mentioned the law. He's not talking about keeping the commandments or observing the traditions of the elders. I mean, that, that's what they had heard their entire lives was the way to the kingdom. So, I mean, what gives? Christ is talking about being poor in spirit, meek, mourning over your sins. Like, where's all the talk about the law? Well, indeed, keeping the commandments and observing the law was not the means of salvation, never was. And so Jesus has and will continue to set that record straight. But lest anyone thinks Jesus doesn't care about God's law, or even that he came to abolish it, he wants to set that straight too. So he says in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And Christ is not against God's law at all. And he did not come to abolish it. Just the opposite. Because it is the word of God down to the very letter, everything it says must come to pass, must come to fulfillment. But the other point Jesus makes in the next verse is that it all comes to fulfillment in him. He is the fulfillment of the law. It's another shock claim that Christ is not just another teacher or interpreter of the law. He is the one to whom the law and prophets pointed. He's the Messiah. He's the one who came to bring God's law to fulfillment. Now, by no means does Jesus eliminate the authority or the usefulness of the law of Moses, but in fulfilling the law's expectation, ushering in a new covenant, the old covenant is no longer the standard by which God's people are to live. The form of God's commands over his people has changed. This doesn't mean we as Christians should, should ignore the Old Testament or delete it. You still need to read it and study it and apply it. But now all through the lens of its fulfillment in Christ, because we in the church, we're no longer under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ. This is why all the forms of the old covenant have passed away. The priesthood, temple worship, animal sacrifice, the feasts, the rituals, dietary restrictions, the Sabbath. I should point out, there is some major continuity between the old law and the new. And Jesus and his apostles tell us that the whole law is summed up in one word, love. God's law expresses his will for his people. It gives them a standard for right or righteous living. And just, just stop and think about it. Like, what does God really want from us at the end of the day? Above all, he wants us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself. That, that is the essence of his will for us. And what do you know? These two commands, they sum up and fulfill all the law and the prophets. The Old Testament law, with all of its forms, was given to show theocratic national Israel what it looks like for them to love God and love their neighbor while living in the land. But now that Christ has come, now that he's formed a new people under a new covenant, the church, the old forms don't apply. God's will is unchanged and that he still wants us to love God, love our neighbor above all. The essence of that is still be found in the law of Moses in principle. But Jesus and his apostles explicitly now show us what it looks like for us as the church to walk in this law of love. 
And that's precisely what Jesus does in the remainder of Matthew 5. Still speaking to a Jewish audience, but he's going to expound on their scriptures and show them the true intent of God's law. He's going to show them the spirit of the law, which, which is part of this thing we call the law of Christ in the New Testament. So what we find here in the rest of really the Sermon on the Mount, it's a perfect case study of how, how we as followers of Christ can study the old and still learn how to live in the new. It's not by the letter, but it is by the spirit. And so what Jesus says here in, in the sermon, it, it still most definitely applies to us. This is him guiding us, the church, and how to walk in, in righteousness. So this gets us to verse 20. It's kind of where we left off last time. It's that hinge verse that suffices as a, a pretty quick recap of verses 17 through 19. What Jesus says there, in a sense, it's simple, but it has some massive and pretty complex implications. We've been spending two weeks unwinding those. But now we need to move on. We need to see how Jesus now directs us to live as kingdom citizens. And that all starts with what he says here in verse 20. If you don't really make sense of verse 20, you won't rightly make sense of everything that comes after that. So let's start here. Let's, let's read verse 20. He says right after his teaching on the law. He adds and says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So our first order of business this morning, you're just going to walk through this verse. Make sure you understand this hinge verse in the Sermon on the Mount. Now you'll notice here he's talking about entering the kingdom of heaven. Essentially making a statement on salvation. This is what it takes to enter. And here it has to do with righteousness. Righteousness basically can be defined as conformity to a standard. And obviously we're talking about God's standard. And because God is perfectly holy, he requires us to be holy as well, to be with him. And he's given us a standard of righteousness to which we must fully conform. You're righteous when you fully conform to God's standard, his will and his word. Now, what is this standard of righteousness? The way he expresses it in verse 20 is comparative, meaning it's in relation to the scribes and Pharisees. You enter the kingdom, he says, when your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Word for surpass speaks of a great abundance. It's like you're harvesting a bumper crop. You have way more food than you could possibly eat. You've got a super abundance. Well, likewise, your righteousness must super abound compared to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, of course, to really get what he's saying here, get the point, you need to understand, like, what, what is the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? You know, in Christ's day, that the scribes, it referred to a profession. It was a profession of people who were experts at interpreting the law. And the Pharisees, meanwhile, they were a sect of the Jews who were experts at keeping the law. These two guys were peas in the pod. They, they went together. And these were the most honored revered holy men of Israel. This is the clergy. They, have, they wore distinctive robes. People sometimes call them father or rabbi. They had honorific titles. When they entered a room, people would stand up to honor them. But their righteousness was 
centered entirely on strictly keeping the commandments of God and the traditions of the elders. These men are all about the letter of the law. Whatever God's law says down to the verse, the letter has to be obeyed to the T. God's law wasn't always that detailed though. So this is where scribal tradition came in. They filled in the blanks. They added hundreds of extra laws and rules and regulations. On top of the Old Testament, these became equally authoritative as the Torah. But still, these religious leaders, they were, they were all in. They're fully committed to keeping every single letter of every single Jewish law. But the, the main problem is that they only cared about the letter of the law while completely ignoring the heart. I mean, your attitude, your motives, your desires doesn't even enter the equation when it comes to, to them keeping the law. I mean, so long as you just outwardly do what the letter says, you're justified. Now, in verse 20, Jesus is by no means saying these guys were actually earning righteousness by their law keeping. He's not telling the disciples, you just got to beat them at their own game. You need to outdo them in obedience to the letter of the law. You need to heap up more deeds of righteousness to enter the kingdom. That's not what he's saying. Just the opposite. He will delegitimize the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees like all the time. Theirs was just a phony self-righteousness filled with hypocrisy. And really, when you take a second look at verse 20, isn't Jesus saying that these guys, scribes and Pharisees, they're not even getting into the kingdom, right? Isn't he saying that? If your righteousness must surpass theirs just to enter, that obviously means that as it stands, they don't have enough to enter. They're not getting in. They're not righteous enough. That's a shocking claim. Back then, Everybody believed, like, if anyone's getting into the kingdom, it's these guys. And look at all they do. But if they're not getting in, the the other side of that equation is equally shocking. I mean, if even the scribes and the Pharisees don't have enough righteousness to enter the kingdom, then what hope do I have? Like, no one's getting in. Who who on earth could, could outdo them? What hope does anyone have to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, most people back then, still today, could barely keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, let alone the thousands of scribal laws. I mean, if what Jesus is saying is true, who can be saved? And hopefully you see, this, this was a shocking claim. People it definitely would have got their attention. Well, let's, let's keep going. Let's explain then what he means in verse 20. What he says here is a double-edged sword. Cuts in both directions. His statement both rebukes the religious leaders for their false righteousness, while at the same time genuinely points the way to true righteousness. His statement both exposes the impossibility of being righteous enough to enter the kingdom on your own, But at the same time, sets up a real standard for righteous behavior. I'm going to explain all that. By any standard of works or self-righteousness, it's impossible to get to heaven. That's because you you just can't possibly be good enough. 
You can't do enough good things. You can't be righteous enough to get to God. And Christ says at the end of Matthew 5, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. You're already disqualified. You will never attain perfection on your own. God requires perfect and complete conformity to his standard. You've already blown it and will continue to blow it. You'll never perfectly conform to his standard, no matter what you do. You and I can never be righteous enough on our own. And and God's law was meant to show you this. He didn't give it as a challenge, like, here you go, just keep all these laws and you'll get in. It's not a challenge. It's a reflection of God's holiness. And then to us, it becomes an impossible standard because, well, we can't keep it. It's meant to show us our sin. That in turn should make you poor in spirit. Meek, humble, mourning over your sin. Like he said in the Beatitudes, realizing I, I can't do this on my own. The law was meant to break you, showing you the impossibility of justifying yourself. Such that the, you only got one hope left, which was always your only hope. It's just God. That's meant to drive you to the throne of grace that you might find mercy in a time of need. And the good news is God's grace and mercy are available to you. They're made available through his son, Christ. God in his grace offers to, to justify us, to make us righteous through, through faith in his son, Christ Jesus. And this is why God sent the Messiah into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And by dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus carried away our sins. And on the flip side, he offers to, to give to us his perfect righteousness, which he actually has. And so it's by Christ's work, not our works, by his work, you can actually be justified, made right, made righteous with your God by faith. And if you have not called on this Jesus by this faith, and do so today. He stands ready to forgive Hopefully you can see how in in this sense, it's impossible for you to enter the kingdom by having more righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, if we're talking about self-righteousness, you can never have enough. I mean, even the standard of righteousness Jesus presents in the Sermon on the Mount is impossible for us to keep. We can only be justified through Christ's effort, not our own. We receive that by grace, through faith in him. That's the only path into the kingdom. And that's not the end of the matter. Because after you come to the Lord by grace through faith, for the gift of salvation, after that, he sends you right back to the law and says, okay, now live like this. After you come to him for the free gift of salvation, he sends you back to the impossible righteousness of the Sermon on the Mount and says, okay, now, now do this, live like this, not to earn righteousness, but to display it, to put on the display that the gift of righteousness he's already given to you, to walk by the spirit that he's given to you, that you might please God and be blessed. And so in this other sense, you can take what he says in verse 20, just face value. Your practical righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, if you are to enter the kingdom. 
It's not the means of entering, but it sure is the proof, the display that you're entering. The true disciple, born again by the Spirit, comes to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Wasn't that the fourth beatitude? And so by living it out in a way far and above that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're giving the evidence that you really are a disciple, a citizen of this kingdom. You will enter on that final day. And the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys were at the top of the food chain of man's religion, man's self-righteousness. But Christ basically says that they're playing the wrong game. They're not even in the right stadium. They're not on the team. And at the same time, just think about this. The least member of Christ's kingdom will go on to display more real righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. By his spirit, that, that destitute old widow could truly be more righteous than these holy men of Israel. That single mother, a foreigner, the handicapped man, that criminal, that prostitute. They could all be transformed by faith and they could go on to superabound in practical righteousness, blowing these holy men of Israel way out of the water when it comes to what God actually cares about. I hope that's you. I hope you've been transformed by faith and you aim your life now at true righteousness. Like he says at the end, or close to the end, chapter 6, verse 33, that you come to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What exactly does that look like? Well, again, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is going to show you. And in specific, after this, Jesus will devote the remainder of chapter 5 to giving six examples, six contrasts of surpassing righteousness. What is this? True, surpassing righteousness. Well, he's going to show you. I told you verse 20 was a hinge. When you get what he says here, you, you really, it opens the door to make sense of everything that comes next. So let's take a little look at what comes next. In verses 21 through 48, end of the chapter, Jesus sets up a series of six contrasts as a way of showing true, surpassing righteousness, that the true righteousness of his kingdom is what it looks like. This is the practical righteousness that must characterize your life as a disciple. What are these six contrasts? What's the nature of these contrasts? You need to understand it's not between the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Old Testament, as if he came to oppose the Old Testament or step on it, throw it out. No. Rather, Jesus sets up six contrasts between the teaching of the scribes and his own word. He's going to reveal six ways that these religious authorities misunderstood, misinterpreted, and misapplied God's law. How they fell short of true righteousness. And then by contrast, he's going to give his own divine word. Showing us the true way of righteousness. In a way, without using a printing press, Christ is giving you pictures. One page, the other page. Here's what they did. Here's the real way. Here's how they lived the phony righteousness exposing the, the holy clergy of Israel. Here's the real way of the Lord. Picture after picture of contrast after contrast, showing the people the way. And we're going to find that, that Christ's way has a lot to do with the heart 
It focuses on the spirit of the law, not just the letter. And on internal obedience, not just external. And the rest of the chapter then, rightly understood in this context, gives us some some premium teaching on how we are to live as Christians. Let me just ask you the question, you know, if you are here today with with faith in Christ, you, you have professed faith in Christ, and would you say you, you genuinely hunger and thirst for righteousness? Not to save yourself, not to justify yourself, just you want to honor God and be blessed by walking in his ways. Do, do you want that? Do you really want to align your whole life with with his ways. I hope you do. I hope at least part of you does. And, and if so, and we get now six inspired examples of, of what that looks like, how to do that. We should be excited here, like, like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, just ready to, to take in his word. This is the way of the master and how we as Christians are to live, not self-righteously like the Pharisees, but in, in a genuine righteousness by faith. And that's going to be our second order of business this morning. It's all pretty much introduction. And the rest of our time this morning, we're going to go ahead and cover the first contrast Jesus gives. Verses 21 through 26. Our first order, we had to go through verse 20, establish the hinge, which we didn't do last time. But now we're going to get into verses 21 through 26. This extended introduction has been necessary, though. It's going to serve us for the rest of the chapter. You don't get the value out of Christ's teaching until you get what he's saying in verse 20. But from here on out, he's going to show how to walk in true righteousness as his disciples, all in contrast to the self-righteousness of the religious leaders. And listen, that, that, that type of self-righteousness can still rear its ugly head today, We need to pay attention and take heed. All right, so in your mind, just do a complete gear shift now. We're going to go into verses 21 through 26. Then for this first example, Jesus takes us back to the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, and he's going to set us straight. He gives us one contrast, two illustrations. We'll keep it very simple. Let's just walk through these, these verses. Verse 21, 21, 22, it gives us the contrast. Verse 21, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. We'll see, we're going to see a pattern here. The six contrasts Jesus sets up in chapter five, they all start basically the same way. He says something to the effect of, you've heard that it was said. Then he says, but I say to you, More or less. That's what he says. It's like, here's what you've heard your entire life from these guys. But let me tell you how it really is. You can see how Christ is setting himself up as the supreme authority. He gets to do that being the divine Messiah. But again, it's important to state that he's not making a contrast between his word and God's word. The Old Testament. Notice he doesn't say, it was written, but I say to you. He doesn't say, you know, the prophet said, But I say to you, he's not making a contrast with what God has said. No, his issue is with the scribal distortions to God's word. What he's challenging is is the traditional scribal interpretations 
and distortions of God's law. This really, this is a reference to the oral tradition of the rabbis, the scribes, later became known as the halakha. After the Babylonian captivity, most of the Jews who returned to the land, they lost their native Hebrew tongue. They only spoke Aramaic. So that they fully relied on these scribes, rabbis, teachers of the law to read the scriptures to them, to interpret the scriptures for them, and to apply it. And over time, this scribal interpretation became its own authority, equally binding with what God had said in the Old Testament. So you've got like two canons merged together. And look, the common man, untrained, uneducated, unlearned, maybe can't even read. He has no access to the scriptures. What hope does he have to, to challenge this huge scribal tradition? It's hopeless, but not for Jesus. Although to them, Jesus was another untrained, not formally trained, lower class Jew from Galilee. He's not worthy to challenge them at all. But we know in reality, he's the word of God incarnate. He came to reveal the fullness of God's will for his people. That most definitely includes rebuking and correcting the religious leaders because they had it all wrong and they were leading everyone astray. He had to do this. He had to expose what they had heard because they were, if if you listen to this, you're in trouble. That's why Christ says later in Matthew 23 that these men, they're just the blind leading the blind. And he says, if you follow them and listen to them, you will become twice as much a son of hell. That's what Christ said. It sounds pretty serious. And so with this in mind, let's look at the first correction Jesus offers By way of contrast, again, back to 21. He says, you've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Again, a reference to the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13. No problem here, of course. Not like Christ is going to overturn the sixth commandment. In fact, he probably starts here, even even though that this is commandment number six, in most people's mind, this is number one. Humanly speaking, this is the worst thing you could do, right? To murder. What's worse than that to most people? He goes on and says, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. This second part is not a direct quote from the Old Testament. But but on the surface, there's still nothing wrong with it. it. It's true that whoever murders shall be liable to the court. Even in the Old Testament, God told Israel to appoint judges in all the cities to judge the people with a righteous judgment. Deuteronomy 16, 18. And so certainly if you commit murder, you're going to have to face the consequences in a court. All right, that's fine. With these two statements, Jesus is summarizing the scribal tradition on the sixth commandment. Don't murder, because if you do, you're liable to the court. All right, that's all true, actually. What's wrong with this? What's the problem here that he's going to draw out? All of these six contrasts, they're all unique. They're all different. They have their own flavor. But this first one, the problem with their teaching is not so much what they said about the sixth commandment, but what they left out, what they failed to say. You can already sense a motivation problem with the scribe's interpretation of the sixth commandment as if like, hey, the greatest reason you shouldn't murder is because you might go to jail. You might have to stand before a court. Yep. Well, that's true. But I think there's bigger reasons you shouldn't murder people. Like the value of human life, God's, God's judgment. 
But beyond this, here's the real problem with how the scribes interpreted and taught the sixth commandment. They only cared about the letter of the law. Meaning, all that really matters is just, just stop short of actually murdering people and you're good to go. Right? They could harbor every evil thought about their enemies. They could fume in hatred over them. They could wish to strangle them. But, I mean, so long as they, they stopped of actually murdering them, they viewed themselves as in compliance with the sixth commandment and therefore righteous. Right? Check. I passed that box. I'm righteous. But with their teaching and their attitude, they miss entirely the spirit of the law. God's standard of righteousness to which you must conform goes way beyond just avoiding the deed of murdering someone. And so you'll you'll get that from Christ's contrast, verse 22. He says, but I say to you that, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And Jesus emphatically gives us God's true will here. And he exposes the heart of murder in three ways. Anger, slander, and malice, you could say. Anger, slander, malice. Let's look at these. First, there's anger. He says, whoever is angry with his brother. There is a righteous type of anger in scripture where you're outraged, not because you've been offended, but because God has been offended. But that's not what Jesus talks about here. He's talking about unrighteous anger, which, which describes us 99% of the time. This term, orgidzo, speaks of a, a simmering anger, like putting a kettle on the uh, stovetop on low heat, little by little, it's slowly but surely simmering and boiling. This is distinguished from thumas. That's more a word for a flash in the pan, outburst of anger. Or gidzo, though, it's the slow burn type of anger. Both are sins in the heart. But I think Jesus picks on this begrudging, embittered anger, probably because it, it just lasts longer. It burns longer. It's kept alive by a refusal to forgive those who have offended us. You know, all fire requires fuel. And so this type of anger, it's steadily stoked by hatred, by prejudice, by holding on to offenses, and so forth. This anger, it's just an expression of hatred in the heart. And Jesus says, that's that's murder in the heart. Same thing. Such anger often gives rise to slander. He says next, whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing. Now your translation, maybe you have, I think, the NIV. It might simply say, Whoever says to his brother, Raka, that, that's the underlying Greek word, Raka. It has no real English equivalent to some translations. They just leave it in, transliterated, the Greek word Raka. But this is an ancient insult word. It's a mean, means of slandering someone else. It has no direct equivalent, but it's, it's about like the words calling someone a stupid, an idiot, a moron. Those are the TV-friendly insults we could mention. But this is a way of wounding someone with your words. You're not physically cutting them with a knife, but these verbal daggers are meant to tear them down, to hurt them. And this reflects the same heart of murder. And this thing goes for the third phrase, whoever says, you fool. 
This is the Greek word moros, from which we do get the word moron, but it's, it's not quite the same. And today we use the word moron as an intellectual slander, uh, intellectual slander towards someone. But back then, referring to someone with this word moros, it was not an intellectual slander. It, it was a character judgment. You're judging someone's heart. It, it was a more serious type of slander. It's, it's really more calling someone today worthless and actually meaning it. You're, you're just worthless. So it's not quite like referring to someone as foolish per se. I mean, Jesus at times referred to his own disciples as foolish a couple times. But in the proverbial sense, like book of Proverbs fool, that, that's not what he's talking about here. There's a time and place for exposing the folly of someone, even a fellow believer. But no, here this is talking about slanderously and maliciously passing judgment on someone that's just worthless. They're worthless. They could perish and go to hell for all you care. But watch out because Christ says, if these sins are in your heart, so could you. Isn't that what he says? What point is he making? From anger to slander to a type of malice, these sins of the heart make you just as guilty as if you murdered someone. This is murder in the heart. And this is how all murders start, of course. You could, uh, I would hope, stop short of going all the way and doing the deed. But in God's eyes, it's like you've already murdered that person in your heart. Now, don't misunderstand Jesus. He is not saying anger and slander are as bad as murder. Nobody believes that. Jesus does not believe that. There are degrees of sin. Everyone believes actually murdering someone is worse than calling them names. But what is he saying? He's saying that anger and slander make you just as guilty before a perfectly holy and righteous God. Because God's command to not murder, it includes the heart as well. You don't pass just because you don't do the deed. What about your heart? You can be just as guilty of the offense. You have to realize God's standard of righteousness is like a single pane of glass. You break part of it, you break the whole thing. Murder is worse than anger, but both sins break the glass. So what does it really matter? Both make you unrighteous before a perfectly righteous judge. So what's going to happen to you? You will be judged. You are unrighteous. You've violated his standard of righteousness. And Jesus makes that clear too, because after these three heart sins, he gives three escalating consequences, judgments. Back to 22. It says, if you get angry, then you shall be liable before the court. It's the same phrase of verse 21. See, it's not just murder that makes you liable before the court. So does anger. And clearly he's talking about God's court because man's court can only deal with someone's external actions, but but God's court deals with even the thoughts and intentions of your heart. You might think to justify yourself, hey, one day when I stand before God, I'll be good. I've never killed anyone. How many countless times have you been sinfully angry and slandered someone? You're going to give an account for every one of those. And going on, he says, if you insult your brother, that makes you guilty before the Supreme Court. Literally, it's the word for Sanhedrin that refers to the the Jewish. It's like a type of their Supreme Court in which in Jerusalem, in which they tried the, the most serious offenses. That the further you, your sin goes, the more accountable you become in God's eyes. And finally, if you judge another as a, as a worthless fool, 
He says, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It just got pretty real. Christ himself truly believes hell is a real literal place of torment and judgment apart from God's loving kindness. We will see his view of hell a lot in Matthew's gospel. He talks about it way more than heaven. And that's why he used the flaming refuse heap of Gehenna to picture it. I'll save that for another time. But the point overall is clear. It's not only murder that makes you guilty of judgment. It's not only murder that puts you under God's wrath. Sins of the heart do the same thing. This is God's standard of true righteousness. It is not enough to follow the teaching of the scribes. Hey, so long as you just don't actually kill the person, you've passed the sixth commandment, you're righteous. You're not guilty. No, you can still be very guilty of breaking this commandment. You must put off all these murderous sins of the heart. And it's no accident that these sins, they're always linked together in the rest of the New Testament. Like Ephesians 4.31. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You see that over and over again. And look, none of this teaching is absent from the Old Testament too. The law of love for your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, should have told them that God cares about the heart just as much as the deed and that the rest of the prophets made it clear. Christ is not dulling the blade of God's law with his teaching. He's sharpening it. And now it cuts you deeper. It goes beyond just your skin. It cuts you to your heart and opens you up, exposes all the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And that's what God's word always does. And look, way down in the heart, what does God require of you? What does true surpassing righteousness look like? Not like anger, slander, or malice. Not like murdering someone in your heart. Just the opposite. It looks like loving one another in your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself. Already this demands reflection and introspection. What's found when your heart is cut open? What, what would we find? Would we find this surpassing righteousness? Now, before we think on that, let's very quickly run through the two illustrations Jesus gives. He gives two illustrations just to take further his teaching. If God's righteousness requires us to put off murder in the heart, You can expect his standard also requires us to put on love, peace, and reconciliation. We can't allow anger to keep us from making things right with with others. And along those lines, he gives two illustrations. One showing the necessity of reconciliation and the other the urgency of reconciliation. So this will be quick. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Here, Jesus pictures a worshiper bringing a sacrifice to the temple. You go to make a sacrifice, you'd bring your lamb or whatever. You'd go to the court of the priest. That's as far as you could go. You'd hand over your animal to go to the altar. But, but Christ says, in that moment, 
you remember something. Your, your conscience convicts you that, that your brother has something against you. Note the wording here. It's not, that, it's not that he has something against someone else. It's that someone else has something against him. Meaning that, that the offerer's conscience has reminded him that he has done something to offend his brother. He has sinned against someone. There still exists a wedge in the relationship. It's clearly presuming it's a legitimate offense. You realize that you're, you're not clean. You've done something against someone. You're not reconciled. So what should you do in that moment? And Christ says the unthinkable. He says, just leave your offering there at the altar and go. The Jews allowed almost nothing to interrupt their sacrifices. Like not even warfare would interrupt their sacrifices. So what on earth could be so important to demand this radical response? And Christ says reconciliation. And the more you think about it, isn't that kind of like the opposite of anger and murder in the heart? Division in the heart would be reconciliation. This is the opposite of anger and murder, which prolongs division and pridefully refuses to make things right. But look, even if, even this, even if this means dropping what you're doing, traveling 80 miles back to Galilee to make things right with a brother, Christ says that's how far you should go to do what is right, to, to pursue peace and reconciliation. And if you don't, your offering doesn't mean much to God anyway. Again, this teaching is not new. Scattered throughout the Old Testament are indictments against Israel telling them that God does not care about all their sacrifices so long as they don't obey him. Right? They're living in sin. He tells them, I, I hate your sacrifices. That's what he says in Isaiah 1. They mean nothing because you're living in rebellion. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen: If I regard sin in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. First Samuel fifteen twenty two to obey is better than sacrifice. First, make your heart right, then come back with your sacrifice. But God's righteousness cannot be reduced to observing some rituals. This true, surpassing righteousness means obeying the law of love. That entails putting away your sin, reconciling with the one you've offended, such that anger and murder in the heart might never gain a foothold. God wants you to be the opposite of a murderer, which is, you might say, a peacemaker. Already you can see a type of application for life in the church. I mean, you come here on a Sunday morning to praise, to give, to listen to a sermon. You think God is pleased with these acts of worship. He is. But if you're sitting here harboring anger, strife with another brother or sister in your heart, and you've not done what you need to do to reconcile, do you think God is accepting any of your worship? This would say he's not. It's better. You might fear the shame, but it's better to just go reconcile, then come back, then worship. Then God will care. Learn the necessity of reconciliation. Second, learn the urgency of reconciliation. We'll finish here. Verses 25 and 26. He says, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way. So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent. You see a shift here from a brother to an opponent, a friend to an enemy. But it similarly assumes you have done something wrong. 
You are legitimately the guilty party. You've wronged another. In this example, it appears you owe some debt. You've not repaid it. So somehow you're with your opponent. You're on the way to see the judge. He will convict you. You'll be sent to a debtor's prison where you'll be left to pay and sit until you can pay the full thing back. And if it gets to that point, when you're before the judge, Christ says, basically, anger, vengeance will take hold. Your accuser will show no mercy. The judge will certainly show no mercy, and you will find only retribution. But here's this little window of opportunity beforehand. It's a short window where you've got a chance to make peace, to reach a settlement on the way. And Christ urges you, do all you can to reconcile that, that you might avoid greater hardship, greater trouble later. Look, this is just an illustration. You can think of countless ways to illustrate what he just said about murder in the heart. But don't miss the simple points he's making. He's correcting the scribes. He's giving the true spirit to the law to not murder. That spirit goes way beyond putting off the act of murder. It includes putting off the heart sins of anger, slander, malice, but the spirit of law goes even further than that. It also includes putting on art of peace and reconciliation. And so be a peacemaker, not a life taker. And especially as the guilty party, the longer you live in conflict, what's happening? The more room you're giving anger to, to grow in the heart. It's like you got to take the kettle off the source of heat. Do that fast. Otherwise, it's going to boil. You're going to see worse trouble and conflict. The longer you persist in pride, the greater chance things will be said that can't be unsaid. Things will be done that can't be undone. I mean, again, how do you think literal murders take place? You can say far away from that by putting off murder in the heart, by actively pursuing peace and love and reconciliation with those around you. You know, above all, we've learned this morning, and we will continue to do so, that God really cares about righteousness in the heart. It's not enough to outwardly appear righteous. God's standard penetrates all the way down to the thoughts, the intentions, the attitudes of your heart. And today we've seen that in a big way, from, from anger to slander to malice, again, all of which amount to the sin of murder in the heart. This is opposite Christ's law of love. Christ's teaching convicts us. Are, are you a good person? Maybe on the outside you might appear good. Others might judge you. Pretty good person. Pretty decent person. Maybe you've convinced yourself. But if we all had a microphone into the thoughts and attitudes of your heart, for one week it would remove all doubt. Right? We'd all be mutually shocked by one another. You see, though, a depiction of your heart when you have a fight with your spouse, when you yell at your kids, when you complain against your boss at work, when you wish harm on an opposing politician, when you grumble against a church member who rubs you the wrong way. And before the invention of the microscope, everyone thought your hands were clean after you washed them. But now we know even after you wash your hands, it's still, they're still likely teeming with millions of bacteria. Your hands aren't clean. And Christ's words have the effect of putting our, our lives under the microscope. And the verdict is, we're not clean. Just because you're not murdering people doesn't make you clean. 
Some of you, in fact, might be thoroughly and deeply plagued by this type of anger or slander or malice in the heart. But even still, like, who is without these sins? Who has a perfectly loving attitude? Who here among us runs to reconciliation right away all the time? This text can make us wonder, is any of our worship ever acceptable to God? I mean, whenever you come under the knife of God's word and are laid bare, what should happen, what he meant to happen, is that the facade of self-righteousness just comes tumbling down. There's nothing left. But that should take you back to square one, which was what? Becoming poor in spirit, meek, humble, mourning over your sins, desiring true righteousness. That's a good place to be. Christ said that's the place of blessing. We need to remember, though, at this point, we serve Jesus, a Savior who came to save sinners. That includes murderers. There are some great men of the faith, Moses, David, who actually committed murder. But they could be justified. They could be forgiven. How? Only by the grace of a God who sent his son to suffer and die in their place. And let's not forget, our Savior himself underwent murder. He allowed himself to be murdered, that we might go free, us murderers in heart. This is our Savior, and it's only by faith in him alone we can be made acceptable to this God and, and pass any of his standards. If you bear conviction this morning over these sins of the heart, good. And just take all of your guilt to the cross and, and you leave it there. And you seek his forgiveness. We're renewed in his forgiveness every day. And then you praise him. You thank him for redeeming you. But just know this. If you do that, he's going to send you right back to this standard and say, okay, now live like this. Now, now do this. Still set your life by this standard. First John 3, 15 through 16 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. But we know love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is how we should now live. We show our love to God in Christ by no longer in sin, hating others and taking life even in our heart, but instead laying down our lives for others to show love. We need to put off anger, slander, and malice in the heart. Put on peace. And beyond the two illustrations Christ gave, you think of all the ways you can, can show off this law of love from a renewed heart. That is surpassing righteousness. This pleases God. This characterizes those who truly belong to him. There's a lot more of this teaching to come in, in Matthew chapter 5. The Lord will continue to show us the way. And may we simply be continually reminded and convicted to seek first his kingdom, his righteousness from a renewed heart by faith. Well, let's draw near to our Savior and thank him together. Our Lord God in heaven, and Christ our Savior, we, we do give you thanks this morning together. It's a whole church body because we know who's, who's without sin. Who could possibly pick up the first stone? Who's not sinned in the heart? I trust all of us could leave justified. We, we've not murdered. Uh, but, but your word cuts us open. It, it's designed to do so. Like the surgeon's scalpel lays us bare and exposes what's inside. And there we find cancer. We have sinned. We have murdered in the heart. 
And we are unrighteous. We've broken the glass. We, we're, we're guilty of, of transgressing your standard. We're, we're under judgment. But this is where your gospel comes in. You already have sent the Savior to, to bear all that wrath, to take all that penalty. The equivalent of, of a fiery hell he endured on the cross for us in our place that murderers could, could go free. That is amazing grace. It's a marvel of grace for sinners, such uh, unworthy sinners as, such of, uh, as us. Make us poor in spirit. Make us meek and humble. And now, knowing forgiveness in Christ, send us back with a, a real hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not, not to appear hypocritical, self-righteous, holier than thou, but with meekness to just genuinely want to live Christ and to put him on and to be like our Savior. His way is blessed. This is the way of peace and love and joy in the spirit. So continue to reform us and reshape us in his image. Convict and change us all this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.